When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. You just bought a home in the suburbs, but no one told you about all the birds, specifically this one, who seems to be calling out Roy. Roy. But who exactly is Roy? And why doesn't he ever respond? Maybe Roy is just bird speak for save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto. I guess until Roy answers, we'll never know. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. Hello and welcome to episode number 29 of The Music Plays the Band on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Koritz of the Dark Star Orchestra. I hope you're all safe and well. Well, we're still out here on the road and I am recording today in my hotel room in Aspen, Colorado as we have a day off before the last weekend of this tour. So far it's been great. We've played some really good shows and the West Coast crowd seem very happy to have us back. I managed to get in some golf and was even able to go to Pebble Beach while the pros were there and walk the course. Uh, Rob Baracco and I went out there early in the morning last Thursday and walked all 18 holes. It was my first time out there and I don't think I've ever seen a golf course that beautiful. Anyway, now back to the music. We had two great shows at the Warfield in San Francisco. On Saturday night, Bob Weir came out to play with us and what a treat that was. We rehearsed for about an hour with him in the afternoon and then did five or six songs together in the first set. Bob's been coming out and sitting in with us for about 20 years now. In fact, his first time with us was at the Warfield. Uh, But in my opinion, this was the best one yet. He told me he hadn't played in a long time and he was really jonesing to make some music. So I asked him if this kind of fed the jones and he said most definitely. So big thanks to him showing up and I am thrilled that we were able to help him satisfy his hunger. I am beyond excited today to bring you a feature conversation with the legendary Peter Rowan. He and I spoke about two weeks ago, and when he found out we would be in the Bay Area in a few days, he asked if he could come out and play as well. So he came out to the Warfield on Friday night, and we started the show with a really fun acoustic set with Peter taking the lead. It had been quite a few years since he joined us, and his playing and his voice are still top-notch. It was really cool to play some of the tunes that we had just talked about old and in the way playing so many years ago. Our conversation lasted almost two hours and I tried to bring you the highlights here. If you're a patron of the podcast, you can hear all of the outtakes and there are a lot of them for this one. And if you aren't a Patreon member, now is as good a time as any to sign up. There are giving levels starting as low as $5 a month, which gives you exclusive bonus content, including all of the outtakes, expanded interviews and segments, 
videos and stories from the road, including some great footage from the Warfield this past week, and much, much more. You can also make a one-time contribution through PayPal, and a portion of all proceeds goes to the Rex Foundation, the charity started by the Grateful Dead. You can find out about all of this and more at www.themusicplaystheband.net. So we're going to devote the majority of the show today to my conversation with Peter, but first let's get started with the Black Music Moment, brought to you by The Clean Store. Brandingandapparel.com for all your branding and apparel needs. Technology-driven solutions and concierge service for managing programs of all sizes. The Black Music Moment is our attempt at chronicling the profound influence of black music and musicians on the Grateful Dead. Today we honor Hank Ballard. Hank Ballard was born in 1927 in Detroit, Michigan. He was a singer-songwriter and the lead vocalist of the Midnighters, one of the first rock and roll artists to emerge in the 1950s. He wrote hits for the Midnighters and others, including Chubby Checker, who had a hit with the Ballard tune, The Twist. He spent much of his childhood in Alabama and began singing in the church. Oddly, one of his major vocal influences was a white artist, the country singer Gene Autry. Ballard returned to Detroit in his teens, he got a job at the auto plants, and he started singing with the local doo-wop groups. In 1953, he joined a group called the Royals, and they had a hit with a racy and controversial tune called Get It, which reached number six on the R&B charts. To avoid any confusion with another band named the Royals, they changed their name to the Midnighters at this point. In 1954, he wrote a song called Work With Me Annie that was drawn off of Get It, and it became their first R&B hit, spending seven weeks at number one and also selling well in the mainstream markets. This song, along with the answer songs Annie Had a Baby and Annie's Aunt Fanny, were all banned by the FCC from radio airplay. Their third major hit was called Sexy Ways, a song that cemented the band's reputation as one of the most risque groups of the time. They had a few more R&B hits in 54 and 55, but nothing else hit the charts again until late 1959, by which time the group was billed as Hank Ballard and the Midnighters. They had several other hit singles in 1962, but didn't reach the charts again after that, and the band broke up in 1965. He continued to have a solo career and collaborated often with James Brown and had a few more minor hits, and in the 1980s Ballard reformed the Midnighters and they performed until his death in 2003. Now, Ballard's influence on the birth of rock and roll did not go unrecognized, and he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1990. On a side note, his cousin Florence Ballard is also in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as one of the original members of the Supremes. A B-side that Ballard recorded in 1956 caught the ear of Jerry Garcia, and he incorporated it into his repertoire. Tore Up Over You first appeared in 1975 with his group Legion of Mary and was a constant in the rotation all through the Garcia band days. When you hear Ballard's version, first of all, you can definitely hear the Gene Autry influence, but you can also tell that it was a perfect fit for Legion of Mary with Martin Fierro playing the horn lines, and no matter what configuration Garcia played it in, it was just a fun song to listen to. So here is the original 1956 version of Hank Ballard's Tore Up Over You.
All right, we're going to go straight to our feature conversation, which is brought to you by Grateful Sweats. Grateful Sweats subtle song designs will strike a chord for heads who get it. Search Grateful Sweats on Etsy for a wide selection of cold weather gear like hoodies, beanies, and of course sweatpants, as well as other grateful goodies with more than 30 designs, including Tennessee Jed, Women Are Smarter, and my personal favorite, Eyes of the World. Visit Etsy.com slash shop Grateful Sweats, or get there from the sponsors page at our website. And right now, if you use the code the music plays, you can save 10% and receive a free pin. And don't miss the clearance section with items up to 80% off. So as soon as you're done listening today, please head on over to Grateful Sweats. Peter Rowan is truly a legend. His career has spanned 50 plus years and included time with the father of bluegrass, Bill Monroe, and the father of the jam scene, Jerry Garcia. Talking with Peter is basically taking a music history lesson, and I learned a ton during this conversation. Like I said earlier, our conversation was nearly two hours long, and even though I had to edit out quite a bit, I tried to leave the best stuff for you. A few hours after we were done, I found out that Peter is going to be playing our Dark Star Jubilee this year, performing Old and in the Way with uh, Railroad Earth. They don't do this very often, and I'm so excited they chose to do it at our Jubilee, and it should be very special. You know, when Peter joined us at the Warfield about a week or so after our conversation, it really illustrated for me some of the stuff that you're going to hear him talk about today as far as taking a short-form bluegrass tune and turning it into a jam vehicle. Lots of good stories, musical talk, and spiritual talk here as well. So sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with the one and only Peter Rowan. Okay, hello everybody. I am here today with Mr. Peter Rowan. How are you, sir? Doing well, thank you very much, very much. It's the beginning of the new year. It's almost the beginning of the lunar new year, which will be in, I think, March is the lunar cycle begins again, and it's going to be the year of the tiger. So we're going to have some uh, some ferociousness going on here and some stealth and uh, some power. You hopefully, know? hopefully all going in the right direction. <laughs> We'd like that, wouldn't yes, we? Yes, <laughs> we are. Uh, you're at home in the Bay Area. Um, you you lived in Texas for a long time, though. Did you just moved out there pretty recently? Um, um, well, I moved out here. I mean, I've I've been always moving, traveling back and forth. The Texas place. Um, the funny thing is, I'm working now with a whole a band out of San Antonio, which was, you know, 40 minutes from my little casita in Blanco, but I found that Texas had become uh, kind of congested. I moved there because it, well, there's two answers. I moved there, one, because they were going to secede from the Union, and I thought, cool, I'll move to Texas. But <laughs> they they didn't secede from the Union, so I, that disappointed me. And also, when I moved there, you know, I, I was living on Route 280, off of Route 281 between San Antonio and Fort Worth. It's the old Chisholm Trail. And it, when I moved there from Nashville, there were maybe five cars on the ro- cars on the road in an hour and a couple of pickup trucks. And it was very, very, very Texas. And uh, I found that in the last 10 years, it started to get really busy to where there there's uh, a line of traffic down outside my house all the way to san antonio and it's just like 
you know, the, the urban sprawl is catching up with even the, the remote parts of the Texas Hill Country. However, I have to say that I'm working with players out of San Antonio now, the Los Tex Maniacs. Uh, we're continuing on from where uh, Flaco Jimenez and I uh, started with the Free Mexican Air Force. So it's kind of a ironic, funny, and uh, and good. Yeah, I'll be going back down there. We're going to record. Right on. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm I'm just so honored to have you with me here today. You and I met for the first time. This is kind of freaking me out that it was almost 20. It was 20 years ago this summer on the Jamgrass tour when we did that tour with all those bands. And yeah, that was that was funny. Do you remember? I don't know if you will remember. Do you remember our quick nine holes of golf at Alpine Valley? Was it up at Alpine? It was right when you came off stage. We went to that little nine hole golf course right behind the venue. And we played a quick nine holes of golf together. We also did something, played a little bit in Florida one time. Yes, that's right, too. Very good. Yeah, yeah. I, I, have you been playing much golf? I try. It, it's, <laughs> I try to play as much as I can still. I, I took my uh, my 20, 20-something son out there, 25-year-old son out there the other day. And, of course, pretty chewed up. But um, over here in Marin County, there's a little McGinnis, it's called. But we have a, a really nice one uh, over in the city. It, it's uh, Golden Gate Park. It's a gorgeous big course. The one where you can see the bridge on that par three coming down the hill. Yep, I've right over it. there. Yep, yeah, I've, I've, I also go out there and do a little painting because it's such a gorgeous sight. That's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So I got a little, uh, I played golf once in the past three years, I think. But I'm, I'm inspired to get out there again, you know. I'm, I, I need the exercise. <laughs> I've been such a homebody. <laughs> we all have. I just remember being so tickled because we had played our acoustic set and then yonder played or somebody. And then you and Tony were playing with Brynn and Billy. And you're like, Hey, there's a golf yeah. course over there. Let's go play nine holes after this. And I was like, and you came <laughs> off the stage and we literally walked off the stage, got in a golf cart. They took us to the course. We played our nine holes and we came back. That's right. we got back while the show was still going. That's on. right. <laughs> well, you were born. I, I'm going to start at the beginning. If you don't mind, you're born and raised in Massachusetts. Can, tell yeah. us a little, can you tell me a little bit? How you first got into music and started to play? Well, I had a couple of uncles that played. My mother's brother, uh, a guy named George Wallace, um, he played guitar and keyboards and banjo and all this stuff. And but he was a uh, he was sort of an industrialist uh, with a Fitchburg paper company, and. Um, I used to throw a family party every year up in Fitchburg, Massachusetts. And uh, uh, that's when I first saw a real guitar was uh, on the counter at his, uh, in his little uh, basement music room. And uh, I, I just, you know, I'd been plunking on tennis rackets, you know, <laughs> bad, badminton rackets. I, you know, uh, uh, this first time I actually saw a six string guitar. I actually have it. Just a funky guitar called a Monterey, and um, but the first person I ever heard really play was my uncle Jimmy, who lived with us. Uh, well, I was about four years old. Uh, let's see, in 1946-45, I was born in 1942 on the July 4th, and by the time I was four years old, uh, my uncle Jimmy came back from 
World War II in the South Pacific, and he brought a ukulele. And he entertained us in the living room. In fact, he brought grass skirts and coconut bras, and we all we all decked up in these, you know, grass skirts. He told us that's what we had to do. And then he he played, and we danced around. I have a couple of I have a photograph from that little session. But that was the first time I heard live music. I was about four. And it was Uncle Jimmy in my mother's living room playing the ukulele, and you know, over time I asked him form chords and this and that but i i never i i learned you know old time tunes ukulele tunes like five foot two and ain't she sweet by my blackboard but the funny thing is that that's when i learned what entertainment was i i asked him to teach me bye 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 blackbird it has a lot of chords and he uh he wouldn't teach me it and uh but he could perform it. You know what I mean? He could cover over where he didn't know the chords. He could just, you know, <laughs> just kind of perform. And uh, that was interesting. But that's the first time I heard it. I was four years old. And uh, it just awakened something in me. And I think I always just wanted to play. I, I strummed tennis rackets. I built a banjo out of a pie plate, and a, 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 a piece of a construction lathe from a construction site. and you know and uh when i was 11 years old my dad gave me an arthur godfrey islander uke which funny enough was made by the mcaferry com company who had made django reinhardt's early guitar wow yeah did you start studying at that point or are you self-taught i'm, I'm self-taught but you know i did i was in you know different sort of vocal groups like a glee club and choir and we sang everything like, uh, you know, bits of Beethoven and different classical pieces that glee clubs would would normally have in their repertoire. And, you know, nobody really taught us to read music, but we all had the music in front of us. And uh, you, you're in a section, right? And so I'm singing like tenor or something. And I'm surrounded by other tenors and maybe one person can read or I don't know really how they did it. Uh, you know, uh, I remember the conductor of the Glee Club reaching a point of frustration one day where he, he threw a fit. And uh, I can see why, because, I mean, we were just relying on other older members of the Glee Club who, who could read a little bit to kind of guide us in our parts. But, I, I mean, even in the Glee Club, I learned by ear, by following what everybody else was doing. And we had to sing parts, you know, all different uh, classical pieces. Some some of them were in Latin, you know, um, you know that kind of thing. And of course, uh, church music. Church music didn't seem to require very much, except uh, my mother would sing a part. She would read a part at church, and I often followed her part. She sang the alto part. Which was and in, you know, it had a different uh, clef, um, right? You know how, but you know, since then, I mean, when I lived in Nashville during the eighties, I probably studied more during that time, uh, because I wanted to learn more. I was playing a lot uh, flamenco guitar a lot, and I, 
I tried to learn tablet, you know, to read tablature and stuff like that. But mostly my whole approach to music has been an immersion in the the culture of the music. Uh, yeah. But as a child, so you're learning all the vocal stuff, but as far as when you're growing up and you're 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, fingers on the fretboard, that was all self-taught? Yeah. Wow. Wow. And did you well, start playing, did you start playing in bands at that point when you were a kid? Yeah, I had, a, I was in a band when I was 12 called the Cupids. And we went from about my age, from about 12 to uh, 17. Uh, you know, we were all in school, uh, just in junior high and high school. And uh, there were several uh, uh, members of the band that were really, really well trained in music. The piano player, Mike Morgan, was very, very well trained. He could read music, but he could also play by ear. So we did a lot of uh, uh, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, you know, the Crickets, some Chuck Berry. Um, Everly Brothers. I had a best friend who had a natural ear for harmony. I learned from these these folks. You know what I mean? It was always an interaction with other musicians. I I didn't develop a, a solo style until sort of in the eighties when I was, you know, digging. Well, you know, it it, it mother uh, invent mother of invention is necessity, right? Necessity is the mother of invention. In the eighties. In the late 70s, you know, after the olden in the way era, I was out on my own after playing with my brothers. 78, I had a record come out on uh, Flying Fish, you know, Tex-Mex and Bluegrass, uh, two of the things that I just love. And uh, But there was no uh, money out there playing. Uh, most of the gigs I did were in Europe. So I developed a solo style by virtue of doing the only work that I could find. Right. Right. You know, I, I learned to play a lot more guitar. And I also asked, asked a lot of questions to people that play jazz. And I, there, there's a, a lot of mysteries on the guitar that, um, and finding one's own style is, you know, it's, you know, it's different on the electric guitar. The electric guitar is pretty much a, there's no hindrance to your technique, but an acoustic guitar coming from bluegrass, you know, everybody used to have their action so high, you could, for, so it'd be more volume, more more uh, pressure on the uh, guitar's body to, to ring more. Um, and, you know, when I was working with Tony, uh, Tony Rice, he had his action down to uh, I, a normal person would make every note buzz. His action was so low, um, but his touch was so precise and so perfect that it never buzzed for, on, for him, but it was low enough for he could execute all his ideas. Right. Uh, you know, and it's taken me, it actually during COVID, I just put lighter and lighter strings on all my instruments and realized I've been missing out on a whole lot of uh, ideas that actually I, the ideas were there, but I could never execute them because the action was always too high. Um, so, cause I was, you know, my training was in being a rhythm guitarist. Right. And accompanying. And, yeah. Just um, providing solid rhythm for fiddle players and 
um, stuff like that. But I did a solo album that Jerry Douglas produced called Dust Bowl Children in 1990 when I left Nashville and I moved to Texas. And um, then I learned after, you know, I mean, really in those days, there were, we were in a funny category of music. We were in kind of like bluegrass. So we got to play bluegrass festivals, which is pretty much all there was, unless you wanted to, you know, play seven nights in a bar or pizza parlor. Right. So, I mean, had the bluegrass side of things. There was also this other progressive side called new acoustic music. And, and this was before Americana. In fact, Americana was, you know, began to be the term that was used when I did Dust Bowl Children. If you're the kid in Massachusetts who's playing early rock and roll and rockabilly, how does that, is that lead into your, how do you get, how does a kid from Massachusetts get into bluegrass? Well, you know, it's what you can hear. I mean, what can you hear? Uh, like, here's this, how I got to hear the music was it was after World War II. Let's see, I was born in 42 by 52. I'd only been 10 years old. Uh, but I heard stuff on the radio. And one of the people I heard was, uh, I don't know if this name will ring a bell with you, but to some listeners, it might, uh, Jack Clement. Cowboy Jack Clement was the person, it's so complicated. I mean, it's so, so interwoven, okay? I'm hearing music on the radio from Boston, and it's Scotty Stoneman on fiddle, Jack Clements on guitar and Buzz Busby from DC on mandolin. And it's called Buzz and Jack and the Bayou Boys. And Scotty Stoneman was one of the most dynamic fiddlers ever to hit bluegrass, you know, but he, he lived too fast. He died too young. Um, he played a lot with the Kentucky Colonels with Clarence White. Um, but again, he, he self-destructed. Uh, so, okay, it's, the 50s and i'm hearing bobby benson and the b bar b riders that's like some kind of bluegrass oriented music for kids in the morning and then it, in the afternoon and in the evening there'd be uh, buzz and jack and the bayou boys well now who who was jack clemens okay jack clemens within a couple of years was in memphis producing johnny cash all the Johnny Cash records were produced by Jack Clement. So, I mean, Jack was out making a living as a music up in Boston when I was a kid and I was hearing him on the radio. Then I'm starting to hear Jerry Lee Lewis uh, and, and Johnny Cash because Jack had moved to Memphis. You know, he was a young man at that time. He moved to Memphis and he became the engineer for Sam Phillips. and. Sam was busy and Johnny Cash was cutting some stuff and Jack had the ear to focus. He became the producer. He was really an engineer, but he became the producer. And when I moved back to Nashville in the 80s, Cowboy Jack allowed me free studio time to cut all, all the songs I wanted with uh, uh, Jim Rooney, who was producing Nancy Griffith and working with John Prine. 
And so I'm saying it's interwoven, you know, as a, as wow. a kid, I, I was hearing the same music from the same people that I was going to be working with later, not even knowing who they were. So great. It's, yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's one thing to be a lover of the music and you discover it and you learn how to play it on your own. And it's entirely another thing to end up being a member of the band with the father of bluegrass. Yeah. Well, uh, how that happened was again, you know, okay, now you're 15. We're, we're playing rock and roll around Boston. I'm 15 going on 16. And so everybody's getting their license. The, the drummer in the band, Chris Scott, had his license. And so suddenly we were able to, you know, move around. And we, we made our, our single. And it got on some local radio play. Uh, and there was a recording studio in Boston called Ace Recorders, just around the corner from a place called the Hillbilly Ranch, which was a bluegrass mecca and a kind of hard 50s country Mecca, their alternative acts. Uh, they put the black light on, and then the, the the twangy Telecaster guitar guys would get up there. Then they'd flip the black light off, and the stage would be illumined to show this this mountain country scene with a cabin on the hill. And it would be the Lily Brothers from West Virginia playing bluegrass. And, uh, and so we, we started to get around and hear more. Uh, and I heard uh, a guy named Eric von Schmidt play the blues at a little coffee house in Cambridge in Harvard Square called uh, uh, Club 47. And uh, Club 47 became a real sh great showcase for everything from Bill Monroe to Muddy Waters to all the local people like Tom Rush, uh, 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 Joan Baez even. That's where she got her start. And But, you know, these people... The music business had, you know, has a fast track aspect to it, right? Is when you're hot, you're hot, right? And when you and when you're not, you're not. That's definitely. <laughs> but, but so so uh, there was a, a buzz of uh, uh, of of people people's careers taking off, you know, who were only nineteen or twenty. I mean, I I heard Joan Baez she. I was 15. She was 17 when wow. she was performing at Club 47. And she came out on the street with us and the whole band, the Cupids, were there. And we all sang doo-wop songs together out in the streets on the corner outside of uh, Club 47. I, I, occasionally I see Joan. I think she remembers, but then I'm not sure she remembers. Oh, I bet she shy. does. I go up to her and say, <laughs> you know, uh, but... Uh, what I wanted to say also was, okay, so there was a record store where you were allowed to take records and put them in a booth, go in a, a record booth in the store and listen to stuff. And so as I, it's not now it's not only on the radio you're hearing stuff, which is mostly rock and roll, but now you go to you can go to a rec, uh, then you could go to a record store and. Uh, take a, a lead belly record and go and listen to lead belly, you know, who had just a few years earlier come up from Louisiana with uh, Alan Lomax and his father, John, who promoted lead belly all around New York. And in fact, it was Eric von Schmidt who, who totally learned all his material. And, and there was one song that lead belly did that I loved. Uh, it was called uh, 
it was called Black Girl, but it's also the same as In the Pines. Long story short, I, I started listening more, you know, to recordings. And I, I from Lead Belly and Josh White, the blues really interested me. I liked it a lot because it had such great guitar playing. And uh, then I heard Bill Monroe's version of Black Girl called In the Pines. That really touched me. It was like, oh, it's the blues, but it's played in a, a odd sort of country mountain fashion. I mean, I was just moving out of hearing what was on the radio, which was beginning to change at that point anyway. Uh, all that early stuff that Chuck Berry and the uh, Buddy Holly, you know, by then was starting to change and it didn't interest me that much what was on the radio at that point. Uh, but, I mean, because this is the late 50s, uh, just after Elvis, right? So like around 1960, 61, the Beatles are starting to uh, come on the scene, right? Sort of contemporaries who, who, in their world, did the same thing. They just started listening to records right. from the United States and copying that music. Everybody on, you know. So, did you seek out Monroe at that point to play with him, or did he find you? How does that work? Well, I started playing with somebody who had played with him. Uh, Bill Keith on the five string banjo had had gone with Bill Monroe. I mean, okay, bluegrass was sort of an endangered species, and everybody knew everybody in bluegrass and who was coming along and who was learning. Everybody knew who was doing what. Like, okay, it's this young kid plays guitar. And people say, oh, yeah, I've heard him. He's, yeah, he's pretty good. Or, or he's not so good. Or he, he thinks he's good. <laughs> you know. And uh, so I was playing a mandolin with Bill uh, Keith, who had been with Bill Monroe. And Bill Keith invented chromatic style of five-string banjo playing or, or perfected it. And he'd been with Monroe as a bluegrass boy, and he'd been. And Del McCurry was in the band at the same time, same time that uh, Bill Keith was. In fact, they both auditioned on banjo, and uh, Bill Monroe asked Del if he if he could play guitar, and Del said, "Well, I can play a little." <laughs> and so, banjo player became Bill Keith, and the guitar player became Del. Didn't hurt him at all. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and so Monroe came up to uh, New England. At that time, Mike Seeger and Ralph Rinsler were trying to promote Bill as the authentic carrier of the tradition. And of course, people were overly kind of deferential to this mysterious man who seemed so taciturn and such a guardian of tradition. Well, it turns out that Bill's idea of tradition was some very specifically rooted uh, musical ideas. Because, you know, I once heard a, an interviewer ask Bill Monroe if, if he didn't think that Elvis Presley had kind of desecrated his Blue Moon of Kentucky song, right? Elvis had a huge hit with Blue Moon of Kentucky. And and everybody's thinking Bill Monroe would be like, well, that, that that Elvis, he sure took it, he sure took it in the wrong way. But that wasn't the way Bill thought about it at all. He liked Bill it. thought it was the, the huge 
the best compliment ever that Elvis had recorded his song. In fact, he, th this, uh, this reporter asked him, he said, didn't you think that, do you think that Elvis had gone too far with your music? And, and Bill goes, no, sir, them were powerful checks. So there was that side, you know, Bill was, Bill was riding a wave, a huge wave, even during the Elvis's rise to power. They were including his music in, in that rockabilly style. But, you know, there's always a younger generation in there. And the younger generations often just, you know, take what they've learned before and go further, you know, in their direction. Um, but so Bill Monroe came up to New England, uh, you know, solo. And Bill Keith put the band together and he told me uh, that Bill would be, Bill Keith would have to be called Bradford because Bill Monroe didn't want to have anybody in the band called Bill, Bill. except Bill, you know, so, so it was Brad Keith, you know, uh, and, uh, I was me and I played guitar on four or five dates. And, uh, and he asked me or suggested to me, or he said, I ought to come to Nashville. <laughs> if that's an invitation, I'm not sure. <laughs> he, you know, you ought to come to Nashville. I can help you, he said. And so, you know, over the next year, um, we took several trips to Nashville. I rode down with Bill Keith and his his hot rod Chevy. And uh, we went to things like the DJ convention and Bill Keith would sit in with Monroe. And I was always there, you know, backstage and hanging out and singing a few songs and this and that. And it, it, I could see it was, you know, difficult for Bill Monroe because he relied on local, you know, committed local players who also needed the work, you know. Uh, and and things weren't that easy for him at that time because the taste in music had changed. But Flat and Scruggs, who had been part of Bill's original band, they they had the Beverly Hillbillies on TV. You know they they were featured nationwide, and Bill Monroe, who was who had taught them all this approach, the bluegrass approach, uh, was still s sort of struggling. You know, I mean, driving across the country in in a car, and you know, and, and while I was with him, he got a bus and. The bus was a, you know, it was a huge maintenance thing. And um, and we drove. I was one of the bus drivers. So, I mean, every bluegrass boy was expected to do his turn behind the wheel. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that that's some dues. That is really paying some dues. And it's not the best way to go about it. But uh, I also was doing the booking for Bill at the time. And I know how much he was getting. And... Uh, he was just scraping by, but he had royalties. I mean, Blue Moon of Kentucky was a chart record, not only for, for Elvis, but for him. Uh, Bill had been on the charts. Bill had sold hundreds of thousands of records, maybe in the millions, you know. Um, but it was, he was 50 when I went to work with him. He wasn't a young 31-year-old, you know, 
on the rise. Um, so, you know, I just tried to fill in every way I could to help him. Uh, and it, it was kind of too much, really, when I think about what Bill asked of, of us. You know, we're the young 20-somethings, and he, we're driving his bus. And it's like, you have to have a license for that, I think. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> in fact, Richard Green on Fiddle, when Bill said, it was your turn, Richard, and he said, Bill, I don't have a license. Which was a flat-out untruth, but it, it ended the conversation. <laughs> it, well, it, it was like that. he got out of it because he said the right thing. Well, I remember years ago, not that long ago, playing at a festival, and, and Dell comes in driving his own bus. Does that come oh, from his days yeah. of being with Bill, with Bill? He just had to drive the bus. Yeah, it's just sort of the bluegrass way, you know? Wow. <laughs> Such good stuff there. I hope you're enjoying it. We're going to get back to our conversation, and Peter's going to talk about how he got to the West Coast music scene and much more. But first, I'd like to take a minute and tell you about Beth Chords. She is a psychotherapist, intuitive clarity coach, and founder of the Authenticity Academy. For the past 12 years, she's been supporting her clients to fully embody their authenticity and create the life they desire with her three-step clarity coaching program. This is your time to gain clarity, defining yourself by who you really are and not what you do, increase your confidence by activating your inner powers, and take soul-led action, creating a life in alignment with your purpose, passions, and desires. Are you ready to learn more? Then book a free 30-minute clarity call with Beth. Visit www.yourclarity.coach or the sponsor page of themusicplaystheband.net. Beth is looking forward to supporting you on your journey. Now let's get back to my conversation with Peter Rowan. Let's jump ahead for a minute, if you don't mind. Um, you, you met Garcia. Your introduction to Jerry Garcia was through Grisman, am I correct? Yeah, uh, I had been in a band with David Grisman after the Bill Monroe thing called Earth Opera. Right, Earth Opera. And then from Earth Opera, I had been in a band called Sea Train. And Sea Train was pretty successful on the college circuit on the East Coast. They had management, uh, the same management uh, as Dylan had in the band, you know, so we were all part of that thing. We got to be in those shows of the band shows. And um, I, I just felt uh, even at 26, I began to feel like it's a weird thing to say, but kind of used, you know, because in order to be part of that high powered showbiz scene you had to you had to sell something you had they had to make something off of you so they're looking for the assets your songwriting your publishing everything that everybody nowadays keeps to themselves because it's such a self-generated business anymore but back then it was all big corporations big companies management and big record companies and if you, you, it was a given that you would do the tour to pay back what the band had been advanced, pay right. back the record company, pay back the management. And the management may have been using the publishing from another artist to give you your money to pay your phone bill. And you know what I mean? I thought a lot about it because 
we never thought of selling out per se, but in a way that was, you were selling out without knowing it, but selling out also gave you a big platform. You know what I mean? You become, I was able to become a, a national artist, uh, on my level, not on the superstar level, but on my level, I was able to become an, uh, a national artist. Well, also playing with Bill Monroe, but in the in those two bands that followed the Bill Monroe and then Mule Skinner with Clarence White and Bill Keith again and David Grisman, we were all in the same boat. We were all trying to figure out, you know, what to do. But music, because we weren't into the money end of it that much because it just our style was not commercial so we enjoyed the music more and bluegrass, bluegrass progressive bluegrass you know we were like always breaking new ground because we were excited about what we were doing and and loved the combinations of stuff and still keeping it pretty much in the pocket uh feeling that not, not feeling like we're being progressive at all except that it's what was musically exciting um and so i got tired of the current kind of the rat race of uh, always working to pay back the debt of the band and it didn't i didn't see the music progressing so i moved back to the west coast to join up with i didn't know what uh david grisman was producing my two brothers Chris and Lauren, the Rowan brothers, and Clive Davis at uh, Columbia Records loved them and signed them. And there was a quote by Jerry Garcia that was made into a billboard on Sunset Strip. And Garcia said, in answer to an interviewer in the Rolling Stone magazine, they said it, they asked Jerry if he had heard anything good lately, something new. And Jerry said, yeah, there's this group out here, the Rowan brothers. They have this sparkling harmony like the Beatles. Wow. They're that, they're that good. Wow. Well, poor Jerry, you know, he was only being not saying something that he was a compliment. But the but but the record company made a billboard out of it. It now, doesn't put any pressure on you at all. <laughs> no pressure. No. I mean, it's like the kiss of death. Horrible, you know. It's it's like You'll never live up to your hype. <laughs> and rock critics were like, who are these upstarts from Stinson Beach who think they're the next Beatles? And, well, they didn't think they were the next Beatles. <laughs> we didn't say that. That was Jerry. <laughs> yeah, so it was Jerry Garcia. You know, so what had happened was that whole thing, they were getting ready to do their first tour. And I just, I was so tired of the East Coast. I just, I, I did my journey west. The journey was everything you know going through the land this one i wrote land of the navajo and my whole approach was go out on my own and find my voice right instead of the voice that i must be for this group or something like that what who am i you know it's a personal quest so i got to the west coast and dave grisman and i lived just a couple of houses away from each other on the beach at stinson beach and he was producing my brothers and one we we get up every day and just you know have a smoke and go barefooting around the dunes with our bluegrass instruments and picking away and you know we were just doing what we always did you know right. there's ne 
there was never any money in it, you know. <laughs> and and uh, one day, you know, a couple of weeks into me moving back out to the West Coast, uh, he said, you know, hey, Garcia lives up the hill. He likes to pick. That's the exact words. He likes to pick. <laughs> so, okay. So we went up there and we just started jamming about every night. Yeah. Uh, it was the three. And uh, John Kahn joined us. So there was a we were quor- quartet. Yeah. You were already on his radar because he was talking about the Rowan brothers. Was was Jerry and the Grateful Dead on your radar that at that point? Did you know anything about them? Only that when we did Earth Opera. Uh, that I, oh, I I had been, Dave Grisman brought a record back from the West Coast. When I left Bill Monroe, I had been singing a song called Cold Rain and Snow with Bill Monroe. Uh-huh. And Bill was like, you know, I mean, people would start asking for that tune. And Bill would even say sometimes, oh, we don't know that number because he didn't want he didn't want me to. I don't know why, but it, you know, it, it was a little different what we were doing with it, uh, using a minor seventh chord. And um, whereas, you know, Bill Monroe's sense of it had to be his direction. Put it that way. It just had to be, even if his direction was changing, it had to be what he was gotcha. he was doing. Um, and the dead have already. Put this out at that point they've got a version well I, they had just made a, a record i think under their own name of the grateful dead yeah could it have been another band name that they no, used it would have been under the dead at that point was that their first record steel and yeah i think first. it was so something about the working in the mines uh but anyway david grisman had met jerry and brought the record back and David knew what I was doing with Bill Monroe because he was always in touch. And uh, I had started doing Cold Rain and Snow, and that was the connection. I don't know if Jerry knew about my version, but, you know, we all sort of knew about each other in a vague way. Um, but, you know, when you when your head's down into your project, you don't sometimes have enough time to come up. That's one of the reasons that I left the East Coast. I just didn't have time to grow musically anymore. So I came to the West Coast, writing Land of the Navajo on the way, you know, sitting around Anadarka, Oklahoma, and, and talking to Native Americans. And, you know, that was my whole background was I, I needed to find out the history of what had happened in the United States. And where were these people now? You know, where were these people who who my home state was named after? Massachusetts. You know what I mean? It's like... Right who where are we living what is our world you know so that journey to the west coast to meet up with dave grisman and my brothers and then with jerry was a search uh, to to find my voice in a way that i i mean i didn't say it was that to me to anybody like i'm on search to find my voice <laughs> but, right. but people but people people have said that's what you were doing i said oh yeah this what that's what i was doing yeah and uh you know, it was a search. It was like, what? And then for it to end up being in old and in the way, it was just because Jerry was so positive about this search because he was on the search too, you know? And and also at the same time, we were also so sort of, what we didn't know is that we were, we were finding it in the searching. You know what I mean? 
Right. That search, that's what's exciting about that music is because Olden in the Way wasn't like, oh yeah, we're playing bluegrass. No, <laughs> Olden in the Way was like fucking bluegrass. You know, like <laughs> it's hard to play, man. <laughs> right. When, <laughs> you know, so we're trying to play bluegrass. <laughs> by the time you guys started doing that in 73, Jerry hadn't been playing banjo or even been a bluegrass player for a long time at that point. Were, were his chops still there? Well, or, they came back soon enough. <laughs> did they came back? It, did it take some time for the to get the bluegrass chops back, or was was it just that easy for him? Listen, when Jerry played the banjo, he had such joy in his face that w- normally what would make you and I self conscious about like not having our chops for him it was just the it was the quest that's what the, Dave, even david grisman said in the liner notes olden in the way was nothing more than a continuation of the original bluegrass quest and and it was that it's an open music it's acoustic music and it gives you a lot of breathing room you know, and it's also very precise. Uh, but what to for Garcia to be fumbling on the banjo was more of a joy than hearing, you know, some expert rip it off, you know, whip off the licks, you know, and and for for sure the thing about Jerry was he he chose his notes uh, or his version of of uh, musical phrases because they made him happy you know like in midnight moonlight the actual lick is and then tony rice got it right uh but on the old and ray recording jerry is just going and everybody who plays it takes that part and i have to go wait no no this is what it is that's Jerry being happy with the song. And it just happened to be the loud, the loudest instrument on the recording. <laughs> wow. But the thing is that, but you'd look over at Jerry and he wouldn't be going like, oh yeah, I'm sorry, wrong. No, he'd be just, he'd just give you this big grin and play what he played. So right. he was like, he he liked to find his part. That was the whole deal. Can you find your part? I think I found my part, you know? And then once you found your part, you just take joy in it, right? Yeah. You know, you know, it's not like, oh, here's your part, play this, because that's what's going to be the arrangement. You know, it's not you finding your part. That's the whole key of that bluegrass circle. When you're learning how to jam on bluegrass, you're just finding your part. Just it, it doesn't even have to be the right part. <laughs> right. But if it's making you feel as happy as it made Jerry to find his part, you know, God bless him. Man. Well, then the, you know, that's the right part at that point. <laughs> if it's feeding your soul and your heart like that, that's the right part. That's true. You know? The right part. Every everybody's got a part to play. <laughs> you know, that band you know, Bill Monroe said that. Yeah, go ahead. That that band, I mean, Olden in the Way was only together for about a little more than a year. They only played about 50 shows. What what was it that made that band so special? Joy. Joy. Yeah. We were you know, it was so hard to get a gig in bluegrass. You know, 
Odin, in a way, people think it's like some kind of a jazz band. I mean, not jazz, or jamming kind of bluegrass. But what it was is, if you had a gig in bluegrass in those days, it might be in a pizza parlor. Right. And you had you might have four sets to play from seven until one. Right. So every time there was a solo, it wasn't like <laughs> you just play an intro and a turnaround. You know, I mean, in other words, you wouldn't play just a little short intro and then the song and a, a little turnaround in the song and then finish it. Boom. Done. OK. Three minutes. No. In a pizza parlor, if you're playing in a bluegrass band, you're going to play an entire chorus for the intro. Right. Then you're going to sing a verse from the chorus. And then the first soloist is going to play maybe a full chorus. But in olden way, we did a verse and a chorus for solos. And everybody would because, take a pass. Because everybody got a chance that way. Right. Like uh, the hobo song. Um, and it, it added a drama to the thing because we'd split the breaks pretty much right like like david would play the verse and vassar would play the chorus and then jerry would play the verse and david would play the chorus or just keep moving around that's what made it interesting but it was really what a bluegrass band would do if it it had like a lot of time to fill right <laughs> you know because uh harlan howard a great nashville songwriter and i were hanging out one night and he said, you know, I never figured out the bluegrass thing. He said, everybody's always playing complete choruses and solos. And he said, when I write a song, and he wrote many, many hits. He said, I write a something that there's a little turnaround, and then you hear Ernest Tubbs' voice sing the verse and the chorus. And then maybe the, the fiddler or the pedal steel does another little short turnaround. You know, I mean, short. There's no soloing, right? But but then there's the other side of it, the Western Swing side, the Bob Will side, where there was a lot of soloing. Um, so bluegrass had that uh, possibility. And if you're going to jam, that's what you're going to do. Is you're going to play all the whole song, you know. Uh, anyway, so that that was why the why those solos were so extensive on the record is because. You know, everybody got a chance to really unwind on it. And and like you said, that's so so different at that point. I mean, that album, first of all, is, is one of the top selling bluegrass albums of all time. But it's so different, you know, and that, from what I understand, the establishment wasn't too keen on it at first. Did, did you all feel that you were deviating from the straight and narrow and kind of taking bluegrass to newer, different places? No, shoot, you're, no. you're just playing <laughs> We're just trying to play it. <laughs> right on. That's awesome. <laughs> I love it. You know, I, I want to talk about Jerry. He had, obviously, he's rooted in bluegrass and Americana, and he loves it. And, of course, the dead also, they incorporated a lot of that in the Bakersfield country and all that into what they were doing. But at the same time, he's doing that in the 60s and 70s, early 70s. They're developing this groundbreaking psychedelia and improvisational music, which is so different than that. In your opinion, how is he, how's Jerry Garcia able to toggle between these very two different disparate styles of music? Well, I had the great fortune in this last year to play my first set of, of Grateful Dead music. Uh, Phil Lesh last April invited me to come and sing a few songs 
on his show at Terrapin Station. Okay. And I said, would you mind if I just played my foam green Telecaster the whole set? He said, no, sure, man. It was like, fuck yeah. And, and I'm standing next to Scott Law, who I've known for a while. And we're both guitar geeks, you know, and uh, I got my Telecaster was the first guitar I played. I didn't start out on acoustic guitar. I started out on a Telecaster. Um, And so I've got this nice Tele friend of mine built. And uh, I don't know the material. And I've only heard it at the few dead shows I might have gone to back in the day, you know. Uh, when we, when we were working with Jerry, he always said, "Come on, come on to the show," you know. And uh, well, what I found out about the tunes is they really have a lot in common with my approach to songwriting. Uh, that's one thing. That's only one thing. Uh, in other words, the the chorus to "Midnight Moonlight" and the choruses to a lot of the Dead songs have the same pattern. There's a three chord pattern in the solos but what i realized was that it's completely coincidence that jerry just likes that flow speaking musically if you went from an f to a c to a g and then the song ends up back in d i'm trying to remember the name of the song i'm thinking of but there are a lot of those changes in there and there are a lot of changes that are really different than that too but why how are the how are the grateful dead rooted well there's two main things there that's all a combination of these things of course but there's the blues form which is da 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 right it's kind of like this this sort of cadence of progression then there's the fiddle tune thing. That's the fiddle tune thing. Like, then the devil is a friend of mine. That's fiddle tunes. Then the blues thing is. So the Grateful Dead music is a combination of many things, but those two things really stand out to me in terms of structure, and they're very traditional. So in a way... Oh, well, of course, there's the magic of the, of the dead. It's like they played a lot together. Right. You know, and after you play a lot together, you're not thinking anymore. You're just hearing, you know, and when you just start hearing tone and stuff, then the person listening to the music outside of that is going to hear that magical thing because musicians are just concentrating on tone. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's one answer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're you're right. It's all rude. It's it's really when you break it down like that, it's not that far of a departure from one side to the other, from the old right. So it's the it, dead thing. Well, right. Um, n- not really. No, but that's old in the way. 
uh, you know, John Kahn copped a approach to the bass. He listened to some traditional music and heard how the Stanley Brothers at one point started to use that walking bass that had been used in earlier recordings uh, as part of the a bass part as kind of a change up of the bass, you know, because bluegrass has got this one, you know, one, two, three, four, and then walking bass would be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you know, and they would alternate alternate those two styles, like do the walking bass during the solos and then ease up and do the open part during the vocal, kind of more open and relaxed. And John Kahn just went for it. Like he understood right away where that was coming from. So he made our sound very uh, hard. It wasn't like just the guys in Nashville going one, five, one, five, you know. He was John Kahn was, you know, one, two, three, you know, he was like boogieing. He was boogieing. Right. And so uh, then you got the you got Garcia on the banjo going and you got the bass going boom dung 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 dung. You got that going on in Olden in the way. And then me and David are going, you know, boom, down, dung, dung, and David's going pachang, and then Vassar is going crazy. <laughs> Vassar was Vassar was our Jerry. Vassar was was our Jerry Garcia. I mean, in a way of like he in the way of of like the lead, the leading soloist. I mean, Vassar was more mature, was much more experienced than all of us. Had played with all the greats, had played with Monroe, had played with Jim and Jesse, had played jazz, had played Western swing. So he was the musical leader of Olden in the Way. So. Well, you don't notice that because everybody else is pulling their weight and and you hear more of other people, actually, uh, you know, because of the songs and, and this but for and that. You all, but for you as a band, that's how it was viewed. It, it, Vassar was leading. I mean, we learned we learned the tune. We learned the tunes. Then I pulled Vassar's number out of my wallet and called him to join our our tour. And he said, yeah, when do I go? Send me a <laughs> <laughs> it's like you had to send him a ticket in those days, right? <laughs> after, uh, after no, he the was way. he go was ahead. the most mus musical. Uh, he was the most musical advanced, musically advanced of all of us. Wow, which made everybody sound good, right? Right. <laughs> I got to play with him a few times, and it made me sound. Oh good. yeah. Oh um, yeah. After after yeah. Old and the Way split up after the short lived time, did you keep up with what Jerry and the Dead were doing, or was were, was that gone for you at that point? Oh well, uh, I mean, yeah, a little bit, uh, but yeah, of course. I mean, how could you not? Really, uh, it was all part of our world. Uh, what was your take on what they were creating? Well, I mean, I don't know. I, all I would, I, Kid Candelario lived next door to me. And he'd play me tapes of, of what they had just done on that weekend, and it would all sound great, you know. Uh, what uh, what uh, is it? Something more that you're asking? Like uh, it, it was just a more more of what they do, you know. Did uh, the it, 
at that point, they're doing so many different types of things. Does does the and you know they're, they they start doing the working man's dead and they have the the, the uh, American oh, no, that beauty. Was all, that was all after. before that. But does that, that acoustic was, stuff appeal to you more than the electric stuff that they would do after that? Oh, oh no, it's all just part of part of their genius. Uh, I do like Uncle John's band, though. I thought that was a real adventure in uh, in psychedelia of its time, with the special solo sections and everything. Right. I mean that that's very much of what. I mean, something about that is essential to that time period. It's acoustic, and then there's these like odd solo sections. I mean, different solo sections that have nothing to do with. Yeah, I I find right. that to be really uh, really interesting. But uh, and then the jam goes into seven, you know, and the jam at the end is in seven, not in four. All or that eight. stuff, you know what I mean? Yeah. That to me is like very very indicative, uh, like a signature of the times of yeah. of what they were into. But you're asking about after that, like into the nineties. Well, I mean, yeah, Emma, and I finally heard a touch of gray or whatever that was. Uh, I will, we will survive. I thought, oh damn it. They got a hit record finally. <laughs> <laughs> it took them a long time, no, and it, yeah. it certainly changed everything for them. That's for sure, and, and for the fans too. Um, yeah, but I'll tell you what—I didn't like being around it anymore yeah. at all. Uh, I there's something very dark and very scary and weird. I mean, scary not for me personally, but there was a danger. I, I sensed a danger. I didn't like it, and. Um, and I began to hear reports, and really, it was only when I just read uh, Phil Lesh's book about about it that he describes what was going on. I didn't realize that, but I just got getting a bad vibe. There was riots, and there were cops, and tear gas, and shit at the dead shows. That's that's a whole other level of of uh, public. Uh, chaos you know and i just thought, i thought that was very strange you know it got too big you know, it, i it, think so it got too big yeah uh you and jerry now let's go back to jerry playing guitar you guys come to the instrument from very different places but was there anything in jerry's guitar playing or any of his playing that had an influence on your relationship with the instrument yeah that still does i'm yeah. still trying to still trying to live up to it that's all you know um i mean a certain playing is a job you know a certain approach like bluegrass guitar playing is you know you're you're caught in a weird place between being a strong rhythm player and then relaxing enough to kind of not be heavy-handed you know that's a, a crucial balance there and when you're playing electric guitar you can be as light as you want because the amplification is going to allow it always to come through. You know, so when you play electric guitar, you can be very, very subtle because it's all working for you, the amplification. But when you play an acoustic guitar um, and your job is to be the rhythm guy, you, you, it's very difficult because you have to relax and be strong at the same time. And that's an ongoing thing. Uh, when Jerry played acoustic guitar, he had he was plugged in, so he was really playing electric guitar. Right, right, right. Now, I, but however, you talk about the pizza tapes, which is Jerry playing acoustic guitar, and there's just 
he's just brilliant you know it's just jerry playing guitar mm -hmm. you know i mean he i would say he's a he, he's fertile fertile ground for imaginative imaginative playing and, and and if you listen to him you always can pick up something and kind of go oh oh yeah i gotta remember right remember you know that that, that triple string pull off he does you know the high note rolls down every you know that leaf pull off and then you pull off the ring finger you pull off the middle finger you know, you know that thing that's very famous lick that he uses. You know, you know, and uh, man, I'll use that. <laughs> even if even if that's my only lick, I'll use it. <laughs> right on. <laughs> you had you had the distinction. You know, really, you played with two founding fathers of different genres of American music with bluegrass and jam band, Bill and Jerry. Are there were there ways that those two guys were similar? Any are there any connecting threads that you can identify that made them who they were? Yeah, it's kind of an inner commitment. I mean, Bill Monroe would say things, and when I was in my tw early twenties, he'd say, "Pete, don't ever give up," and I never knew what he meant until maybe you know I got into my fifties and. It was like, right, that's what he was saying. You're going to get there. That's when you got to remember, don't give up. And I, I would say Jerry had the same kind of commitment, but he, Jerry became more, um, in, in, in many ways, Jerry became more uh, introspective, maybe, mm -hmm. and to, unless you had contact with him. I mean, the I, a couple of contacts I had was I was on the road doing my thing, and mm, I had opened for the Garcia band, and I got invited to, to come do a show, but I was like, this was, oh, the late 70s, early 80s, and Tex Logan and I opened a show for the Garcia band. There, there were still connections, you know, and I was touring with Robert Hunter, uh, as a solo artist, and there's this still a lot of connections, um, which, yeah, I'm grateful for. Really, you know, he's allowed me much more exposure be because of these connections. With, uh, but it was all about music, so it, I feel really validated by it. Right. Um, but what I wanted to say was, uh, in terms of the similarities with Bill Monroe. And Jerry Garcia, I would just say there's commitment, like a commitment. Whereas I'd be on stage with Bill, you know, I'm so three years with him, maybe four, closer to four years. And um, he would shout at me on stage if he heard me like trying to cop somebody's vocal style that wasn't my own. He'd say, sing it like Pete Rowan. Wow. I'd hear him behind me. <laughs> sing it like Pete Rowan. He didn't say, don't sing it like so-and-so. He would just say, sing it like Pete Rowan. He said, tell him it's Pete Rowan singing. That's a mentor, right? That's He's mentoring me. He's he's saying, who? what's your voice? What's your commitment to your expressiveness? You know, whereas Jerry, uh, at that point, we were all in a different place. And I just remember singing at the end of the land of the Navajo going, it's kind of weird, huh? Should I just shorten it? And he goes, no, man, keep going. 
Jerry was like, take it further, you know, whereas Bill was like, where's the focus? Keep, keep, keep it, keep it defined and focused right. because that's, that's what Bill had to do within all that country picking. He had to maintain a, an individual individuality of sound, um, something like that. But uh, it came to mind while you asked that question is a couple of encounters I had with Jerry during those later period. One was I, I got invited to go to a show. I was out on the road, I think with Robert Hunter. And I went to the show and, you know, they cook a steak for you and you, you know, you're catering and it's like, wow, you know, you're backstage and you got special seats and this and that. And I was thinking maybe I'd have a chance to see Jerry, but also respecting the fact that, you know, it's intense. You know, these, these, you know, these massive shows with lots of people and hangers on and this and that. And I, so I was just kind of being, I was being shy, really discreet. I was up in the balcony and I, they were breaking down or they were just, just finishing i mean i watched the show and they were finishing the last number and jerry looked up and saw him he just looked up to where i was he knew where i was and he waved but he waved in a kind of like tired like hey hey buddy you know it was like from a distance right right and then a few weeks oh and maybe a year later or I was over at the record store in Mill Valley that we all used to go to John uh, John's record shop over there, and uh, I was in there looking at trying to find some old doo wop record or something. And in walks Jerry with with uh, with Weir and and Phil, and maybe uh, Kreutzmann too. It was kind of the whole gang. Actually, this wasn't long before he passed on, and he was. He was just like a radiant sun. He, he was just beaming. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So from a distance, a wave of like, I'm stuck out here in my world, hey, over there in your world, to being in the presence of the man, uh, he still had this tremendous, uh, this uplifting power. Environment I like was everything. Say, it was all about the, the environment. Yes, but him personally... Well, right. No, on stage after a long show like that, that was, I, I have actually stood when we were touring with the dead, Olden in the way, and I stood uh, backstage and Jerry turned away from the crowd and looked back and was doing something with his amp. He was not Jerry, the old, good old Jerry. He was some kind of fierce, fierce, fierce energy. Yeah. I mean, it was like out of the way. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't saying get out of the way, but it was like you felt it. I was like, whoops, stand back. <laughs> right. Wow. Give this fire room to burn, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I got two more questions for you. I don't want to keep you too long, but I do have two more questions I wanted to ask you, if you don't mind. Um, yeah. One, in addition to bluegrass, you're, you're a chameleon in my book. You, your musical evolution has spanned other genres, Tex-Mex, rock and roll, reggae, just to name a few. Where does your love for so many different styles of music come from? Environment. I found myself in Texas on tour, and then I stayed on after the band went back. And 
I wrote Midnight Moonlight because that was the environment, you know. What about and, reggae? Uh, uh, when Bob Marley came to San Francisco, uh, my brothers and I had played the, the boarding house ourselves, and uh, Olden in the Way had recorded there. And Bob Marley was playing there, so we went every night. We we just went for like seven nights in a row, whatever. And I just remember getting so zonked and laying on the drum riser with only a curtain separating me from uh, Carlton Barrett on the drums. Mm. Uh, I I just think I got dosed. <laughs> I mean, I got reggae. I got reggified, you know. My and we. <laughs> we had a uh, Lauren had a band called the Spliffs, and he played in all Bob Marley material. Uh, but now I'll, I'll tell you what. Here's where it really comes from. When I was about five years old, or even younger, uh, my parents went used to have visit some neighbors that lived about a mile away, and we'd drive up there, and I was. The only, I was the firstborn. They were the first ones to have a child, and they made might, might have had a small child. Uh, the neighbors might have had a small child, like one or two years old. But I was four or five. I was always the oldest kid, and um, you know, you'd be dismissed by the adults in those days. Right. You you go you go in the kitchen. You go outside and play, or go in the kitchen and. And Viola will give you a cookie. Well, Viola, Viola was a Jamaican maid, ah. and I mean, she. This is my connection with Viola. She was a Jamaican maid. She was very, very nice, and but she was also taking care of their young child, the neighbor's child, and she wore like a nurse's uniform. I don't know if you ever saw that, but back in the day. Yeah, no, I know what you, you mean. Sure. When, in those days, in the 40s, when you had somebody, you know, either staying with you or just being somebody who would come every day, not a maid, but somebody who would be uh, helping the mothers, a mother's mm -hmm. helper, uh, quite often it would be from a, a, a social service kind of thing and they wore a nurse's cap and they wore white yep and and always had a sweater mm -hmm. and they would all would always wear a pin they had a little and, pin yeah my grandmother like had come in time you know. who did that exactly yep. exactly well this woman was so nice to me i remember uh, sitting down at the little table for mica table in the kitchen and she laid a toll house cookie out on a napkin for me and a glass of milk and she touched me and she said pita yeah all right <laughs> now to a five-year-old kid who isn't feeling very secure in the world that means a lot she and, and she had the most beautiful skin like purple it's like she just glowed and and uh, and I, you know, she was the only black person I had ever met. And she just put her hand on me and she said, Peter, you're all right. So you had that you know Jamaica I mean? thing in you from that time you were a kid. 
that's I think that's where it started, actually. Wow. Yeah. And then the and the rest of it was from just oh calypso music. Harry Belafonte. One of my favorites. You know, hearing you know, one of the great ones, right? Yeah. One of my favorites. Uh, last question for you, my friend. And but you because you straddle so many genres, you appeal to a number of different audiences and obviously just being associated with old and in the way and Jerry puts you on the radar of dead fans everywhere. Can you describe the difference? Is there a difference between playing for an audience of deadheads versus a more traditional bluegrass Americana audience? Uh, hold on. <laughs> what kind of question is that? <laughs> <laughs> You know, because you'll, st- you'll oh, still go play a bluegrass God, festival, that's... and then you'll come out and play one of our festivals, and it's a completely different kind of crowd. Do you notice a difference? Not, not really, not really, not anymore. Not it's not that different anymore. I would say it's the, 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 what they used to call mainstream mm-hmm. was was a sort of very specific uh, produced sort of focus. But now mainstream includes the Grateful Dead, includes free jazz, includes all the things that were never mainstream. Right. And so I was never mainstream. So I'm 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 surfing I'm surfing the break on the So, so I mean, so so musical audience, their palettes have widened so much over the generations. Everybody knows about a lot of stuff. I mean, music fans especially. I mean, if they're really music fans, they know about a lot of stuff that that used to be very narrow. Now it's much wider. And the dead have done tremendous things to open it up, for sure. Uh, Because part of of that tradition is discography, you know? Oh, where did that come from? And where's that? And this and that. Um, But, you know, that leads to a much bigger question which I don't even know how to ask, <laughs> but it, it's like, what the fuck is happening <laughs> in this world? <laughs> we, that can be a whole nother episode. That'll be part two of my conversation with Peter Rowan. <laughs> hey, before I let you go, yeah, I don't have the answer for that. <laughs> not, I don't think anybody does. And people can talk about it for days, weeks, months, and nobody has the answer to it. So before I let you go on your way, I do this with every one of my guests. It's just a quick lightning round. I'm going to ask you some questions. Try and come up with your answers quick. Uh, Your favorite Grateful Dead album. How about song? (laughs) Broke Down Palace. Beautiful. Your favorite. I don't know if you'll be able to do this one either. Everyone hates this one. Your favorite non-Grateful Dead album. If you were going to be stranded on a desert island for the rest of your life with one album, what would you take? uh muddy waters live at newport wow that came out quick that's your that was one of the quicker answers thank you uh for your first job well i have to say i played music before i had any other your favorite color well red red Red. purple (laughs) purple's my favorite um your your favorite venue to play i enjoyed uh ireland as much as playing anywhere, really. Uh, it's just uh, a tremendous uh, energy from the, the crowd. In Ireland, is that what you said? Yeah, Ireland, Japan, Italy, those, those audiences are tremendous people. 
Yeah, best place for a day off. So by the ocean, I would I would say, but it depends too. You know, I like the altitude. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, your first car. Um, the first car I ever bought was a Cadillac, and I bought it in Nashville for one hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> it was it was blue, and it was a coupe, and it had plastic leopard skin seats and it was probably huge huge i drove it from nashville to massachusetts and there it stayed (laughs) okay uh your current car uh i'm driving a lexus i've had it for about about 14 years (laughs) excellent and finally the book you're reading right now Oh, I have a really interesting book I got from Tex Logan here, American Ballads and Folk Songs by uh, John A. Lomax and Alan Lomax. But uh, as far as, yeah, and as far as fiction goes, I recommend this book, The Committed. It's about the Vietnamese experience of uh, our involvement in their world. Uh, it's It's a novel. It's fiction. It's very good. Excellent. Well, Peter Rowan, I, I can't thank you enough for taking so much time with me today. I've enjoyed the stories. I've learned a ton. And, uh, <laughs> and and I look forward to the next time we might run into each other and get to play nine holes. Well, hey, man, and thank you for the space for me to <laughs> unwind a little bit with uh, talking with you. I've enjoyed it so much. And uh, let's, let's unlimber those three uh, three irons. Got to stretch a little. <laughs> it's getting a little, uh, getting a little tight sitting here at home so much. Yeah, baby. Thank you so much. I'm sure everyone's going to listen, enjoy listening to this. And I, 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 I so am I, I'm honored that you took so much time to hang out with me today. Appreciate it, man. It's great to talk with you. Right on, everybody. That is Peter Rowan. Thank you, my friend. Wow, such good stuff. And what a wealth of knowledge and spirit, Peter. is just a joy to be around. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode, and I'd like to thank Peter Rowan one more time, and I'd also like to thank my sponsors, Grateful Sweats, The Clean Store, and Beth Koritz at YourClarity.Coach, and of course, the Pantheon Podcast Network for bringing me into their family. You can check out their 70-plus music-related podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support the cause, please consider a monthly Patreon subscription that offers some great bonus content every week, including a ton more from Peter and some pretty cool videos from our rehearsals together. Or you can show your love with a one-time contribution, and please remember that a portion of your contribution will go to the Rex Foundation. Get info about this and everything related to the podcast at our website, www.themusicplaystheband.net. Any love is much appreciated as we try and keep the show rolling along. The Music Plays the Band is produced by myself and the production and songwriting team Brothers Lazaroff here in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find out more about them at www.brotherslazaroff.com. The opening and segue music you are hearing are remixes of portions of DSO drum segments that are produced by my drumming partner Dino English. I will be back again in two weeks. Big one coming up, episode number 30. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and please stay vigilant. We're trying to get back on the good side of all of this, and it's really going to take an effort from all of us. Thanks for being here.
And now another no-brainer money-saving tip from Progressive. That doesn't sound good. Paper shredder's jammed, but I think I fixed it. Oh, well, try shredding these $50 bills then. Seems like it's working. Mm, better try another 400 bucks. Stop. Instead of using money, use regular paper. And here's a better tip from Progressive on how not to waste money. Don't pay too much for car insurance. Drivers who switch and save could save hundreds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Potential savings will vary. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.